Hi there, it's Josh Barrow back with this week's second episode of Serious Trouble, and it's only Tuesday. This episode is about the new RICO indictment in Georgia, which we honestly think is kind of a mess. And for free subscribers, we have a brief episode discussing what's laid out in the case and what it even means for something to be RICO in Georgia. For paid subscribers, there's about twice as much episode. That includes Ken's and my full conversation with Andrew Fleischman, an appellate defense lawyer in Atlanta, about some pitfalls that District Attorney Fonnie Willis is likely to face as she moves this very complex case toward trial. Trump and some of his Confederates are going to have plausible arguments that the case should be heard in a federal court. And hashing that question out could add literally years of delay. As Andrew describes to us, these RICO cases often bog down for a long time, even when they're in state court. And overall, he paints a picture that's contrary to a lot of the press coverage you're seeing of this as the most fearsome and threatening indictment to Trump and also one that might go to trial very fast. So if you want to hear that whole conversation with Kenny's cousin, Andy Raincloud, stop this tape. Go to SeriousTrouble.show and for $6 a month or $60 a year, become a paying subscriber. You'll get every single full episode of Serious Trouble over 40 a year and sometimes even two in a single week. You'll also get to join our lively reader discussions on our website and you'll be helping to make this show possible for Ken and Sarah and me to do this for you every week. So I hope you'll do that. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. I'm back here with Ken merely 25 hours after we taped our first episode this week. Uh, if you've listened to that episode, I'm sure you know exactly what happened. We recorded during the day on Monday, thinking that maybe there would be an indictment coming down from Georgia later in the week, maybe as early as Tuesday. And uh, the grand jury there worked overtime, and very late in the evening, 11 p.m. Eastern, we finally got this very long, sprawling indictment of Donald Trump and 18 other defendants uh, in a RICO case in uh, Georgia. 41 counts. The top count is RICO. And so first of all, Ken, it's RICO. How do you feel about that? <sighs> Tired, Josh. Tired and hungry. <laughs> uh, yes, it is RICO under Georgia's RICO statute. Now, I could use that qualification that it's not real RICO, but I mean, if you're charged with it, it sure feels like real RICO. So <laughs> this is a genuine uh, RICO charge under Georgia law, but that means something a little different. This feels like that episode of House when it was finally lupus. Well, exactly. A lot of people have been, uh, been bringing that up. So I, I think it's very interesting. The more we learn about Georgia Rico, the more we learn about how different it is and how it's used. And we'll explore that today. Yeah, we have actually, we will be joined in a moment by a, a practitioner in Georgia, a criminal defense lawyer uh, who works in, in the state of Georgia where Rico works a little bit differently than the federal statute and a lot of other state Rico statutes. Uh, but first, let's, let's talk very broadly about what this indictment is for. I mean, there's a lot of overlap with the recent federal indictment in Washington, D.C., where it is for an effort to steal the election. This focuses on specific efforts in Georgia, which were a little more well-developed than they were in some of the other states where Trump and his associates tried to interfere with the count. Um, but it also even describes a lot of actions in Washington, D.C. and actions relating to the vote count in other states while it focuses on the Georgia count. Right. It treats uh, much like uh, Jack Smith's Washington, D.C. indictment. It tells the big picture story and it has a lot of elements that are outside of Georgia, but the focus is definitely there. As you said, it is 41 counts, the, the top one being RICO, but the other ones being other Georgia law violations like, you know, solicitation of a violation of oath by a public officer, impersonating an officer, false statements and writings criminal attempts to commit influencing witnesses, 
conspiracy to commit computer trespass, just a real grab bag of fun Georgia criminal statutes. And so is there value in charging RICO here? I mean, I know people talk about that it's it sounds big. It's like, ooh, a criminal organization. Mike, Mika Brzezinski was on MSNBC this morning talking about, do you really want to be associated with this criminal organization? But I could think of a couple of better reasons why you might charge it that way, even if you could more simply charge the underlying crimes. Uh, one is I know there's a mandatory minimum for RICO in Georgia. So does it help you get a, a longer sentence? Does it help you tell a cleaner, simpler story in the indictment because you're able to say all of these little crimes, they added up to one big crime. What's the reason for going for RICO here? Well, I want to ask our guests more about that, but I will start out by saying that this does not impress me as a deviation from the general rule that RICO is often used kind of as an exclamation point uh, or an emoji, if you will, that it's used to sort of convey how bad these people are, how serious this case is. It is a tool that allows you to charge a lot of people at once, but you can do that with a conspiracy uh, statute most of the time. So yes, there is a mandatory minimum sentence, which we'll talk about, um, but really it seems seems like it's being used uh, because the complexity and difficulty of it is part of the punishment of the defendant uh, because of the competitive advantage it gives the prosecutors in the way they prosecute and because it is really attention grabbing. You know, not only do we charge this person, we charge them with RICO. One of the things I'm hearing a lot in commentary from defenders of Donald Trump is this RICO count is really long, 57 pages, 161 alleged acts in furtherance of a conspiracy. And some of those are specific crimes, like someone perjured themselves or that sort of thing. But some of them are acts that are not otherwise illegal. And some of them are even, you know, core political acts or their speech acts that's, you know, Donald Trump tweeted and encouraged people to watch this thing. And they're looking at that and saying they're, they're trying to send him to jail for tweeting uh, which is, you know, in addition to not being a crime as protected First Amendment activity is core political activity. It, it would be the same if you were charging a conspiracy, right? You could have acts in furtherance of the conspiracy that are not themselves crimes. You could. Uh, but I, I think it's useful to contrast this indictment with Jack Smith's uh, Washington, D.C. indictment. Smith was very careful in the way that federal prosecutors tend to be to try to distinguish between protected free speech and criminal fraud. And he did things like conceding that there was this wide zone of free speech and explaining where the line is and why some things were deliberately fraudulent. And the overt acts he picked tend to be things that explicitly included fraudulent elements. The DA here in Georgia really has not done that. And in the style of DAs who, in my experience, are a little less concerned with coloring inside the lines and with, uh, you know, what a judge might do if they saw this, this very much just leans into all the political and speech elements and throws them out there as potential overt acts without any apparent worry that that's an issue. Josh, I, I want to talk for just a second about overt acts to kind of put it in context. People wonder why are they there? What do they do? So the concept behind overt acts is this idea that you don't want to criminalize two people just talking. So if you and I have a few drinks and we think, you know, government should be overthrown and we agree we're going to do that and then in the cold light of day we never do anything, the idea is that shouldn't be criminal. Uh, that's why conspiracy statutes generally require somebody do an overt act towards the crime that's going to be committed. And in fact, in the Constitution, 
uh, where it really limits the definition of treason because of exactly this sort of over-prosecution issue. It says, no person should be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession. So the idea is we don't want to make it too easy to criminalize talk. But in practice, overt acts in an indictment have turned into sort of exposition, right? The, the place where the government lays out the story, the place where it talks about evidentiary things it has, things like that. It's really less about let's prevent people from getting convicted just for talk and more about let's lay out facts. And prosecutors use this with different levels of skill. Again, I think Smith's indictments are generally better at telling stories in a clean way. Uh, this indictment, I think, is a little more kitchen sinky in terms of throwing everything that happened into a big glop of however many hundred uh, acts. So that's where we are. Uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis gave a press conference late on Monday night after the indictment came out. And there were a couple of things I thought were especially remarkable in that press conference. One was that she said she'd like to have a trial date within six months from now. And another was that she intends to try all 19 of the defendants in this case together in one trial, which sounds like a huge mess to me. Um, and I think this is a good opportunity to bring in our special guest this week. We have Andrew Fleischman with us. Uh, Andrew's an attorney at Sessions Fleischman in Atlanta, right, Andrew? That's right. Um, he's a specialist in, in appellate cases. He's written for Slate, Arc Digital, and a number of other web outlets. And he recently won a hung jury mistrial for his client, Maurice Jimerson, who was in the news because your client had been waiting 10 years in, in custody for that trial, which is remarkable. Uh, yes, it certainly was, but the state had a good excuse. There was a hurricane in 2018. Wow, yeah. So <laughs> there you have it. Uh, so, Andrew, when you looked at, at this case coming down, I mean, it's, I, I think it's interesting. So much of the commentary that is done on cable news and in the press about these prosecutions is done by former prosecutors. And obviously, former prosecutors have a lot of expertise in these areas. They also tend to have a bit of a bias toward the prosecution. Something I think that's a little bit different about our show is that we have Ken with us, who's a, who's a criminal defense lawyer and, and also used to be a prosecutor, so he's been on, on both sides of that. What did this look like to you as a criminal defense lawyer in Atlanta, looking at this, this very sprawling case with so many defendants, and the DA says she wants to try to try it in six months? It looks like part of a continuing pattern, right? So Fonnie Willis made her bones famously in 2014 in the APS school trial, where you had a bunch of defendants charged with helping kids cheat. That trial took eight months. It exhausted their lawyers, and she had a lot of success with that. For, for people who aren't familiar with that case, the defendants were teachers in the Atlanta public school system, and they were helping the kids cheat on the tests because it, was, it, it, was, it benefited them professionally for the kids in their classes to perform well. And so that was a scandal, but it was also it was a scandal where they, they prosecuted the teachers under the Georgia RICO statute for having done that. That's right. And Georgia's RICO statute is often used in ways like this that don't make a lot of sense. In one notable case, same year, three court reporters were charged with RICO because their font was too big on their transcripts. <laughs> Which meant that they got paid more for producing transcripts. Like, you know, everyone everyone knows about doing this from high school. You know, you, you move the <laughs> margins a little bit closer together and it's more pages. And, you know, that helps you get a good grade. Or I guess when you're an adult, it helps you bill more to the court. Now, Andrew, I swear, I thought you were putting me on on this. So I looked it up and <laughs> absolutely true. Three court reporters using too big of a font. So it turns into too many pages. So they get more money. It's a RICO. So you college <laughs> and high school students listening, just, you know, be on your guard. All right. <laughs> we, we do it all kinds of crazy ways. Uh, you know, we just end up using RICO as an exclamation point in a way that probably federally we don't. 
And you don't have the same breadth of case law defining what an enterprise is and helping courts figure this out that you have federally because practitioners in Georgia just aren't as good as federal practitioners on these issues. But so, I mean, that that APS case, the public school teachers, it sounds kind of absurd to use the RICO statute for that specifically, but they secured convictions in that case. And so is this something that works for the DA? I mean, because that's sort of a separate question from like, is this how RICO should work? If it does work, if this is a way to bring trials and obtain convictions, I think that's, you know, that's an important argument, obviously, in favor of why the DA would charge it that way. Well, I guess my problem is why does it work? It works because these trials take eight months to a year and lawyers can't take any other cases while they're on these, which means that their clients can't get choice of counsel. These people are stuck in there. You basically want to habeas the lawyers who are stuck in there. There's a trial right now, a RICO trial in Fulton for a guy named Young Thug. That is currently, I think, on month six of jury selection. It's eight. Eight months of jury selection. Yeah. So obviously no sane person can do that case for less than a million, two million dollars if you have a practice you're trying to keep up. So yeah, it works on one level, but on another level, you're also holding these lawyers hostage for not very productive ends. Well, so I understand that as a general matter, but in in this specific case, if you didn't charge as RICO, it would still be an extremely complex case that I assume would take a very long time, would still have lots of counts. Donald Trump, at least, has essentially endless money to pay for attorneys. And a lot of people who are very interested in doing something very high profile and representing a former president. Now, maybe this is an issue for the for some of the other 18 defendants. But I, I am, am I wrong in my instinct that the, the RICO thing does less to complexify this case than it would with some of the other cases? I think that's right. I think the big benefit of RICO for the state here is if you want to bring in other acts and stuff that happened from other people, you normally have to have a hearing about that, a 404B hearing to bring in that evidence. And this makes all this stuff relevant to the chief crime, which means you can come in without some of the same paperwork and hearings you would have. And that's very useful for the state. So you want to talk about something that happened in Pennsylvania? Well, it's a predicate act, so now we can without having to go through all those extra steps. The other thing I saw, Andrew, and I know you're, you're an appellate attorney. You've worked on appeals of RICO cases, so I think you might be attuned to this. I read George's RICO statute, and then I did what I always do preparing for this show. I went, let me go find a case that says, what are the elements of RICO in Georgia? And for our listeners, you know, the elements are like, you know, in a federal case, it would say to prove RICO, the government has to prove these eight things. Here they are in order specified. And I went into Georgia law looking for a case that does that, and I did not find it. I found case after case where the defendant says they didn't explain to the jury what the elements are. And the judge, the, the court of appeals says more or less, well, this is what the statute says. They told that to the jury. That's close enough. I couldn't find out what the goddamn elements of the crime of RICO in Georgia are. I'm doing a RICO appeal right now, and I share your frustration. I am going to try to get the courts to go ahead and knuckle down on that a little bit more because I think we've been playing it maybe like party to a crime plus. Okay, we're trying to produce this episode today. How long do you think it's going to take you to do that? I'm <laughs> <laughs> about a year and a half. Away. Okay. But so is it fair to say that basically that Rico in Georgia is when three people get together and do a crime? That is basically how it's been treated. We have like one case where these guys successfully appealed because their indictment didn't even say what the enterprise was or whether it was legal or illegal. And the court said, OK, redo the indictment so it makes sense. But yeah, these indictments are very vague. Juries are not well instructed. And it's a big problem. And just so we you know, give it to the listeners to be fair, what the statute says, and it's unlawful for, for any person employed or associated with an enterprise, a group of people doing something, 
to conduct or participate in directly or indirectly that enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. It's also illegal to conspire to do that. Now, with a federal statute, the feds turn this into like 10 elements in this incredibly complex multi-factor test that's hard to meet, even for federal prosecutors. Uh, but it, it seems to be very generously construed by Georgia courts. Generous is one way to put it. Okay. <laughs> Generous to one party. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's the end result is that you would think this would be harder to prove, and it just doesn't seem like it is right now until somebody steps up. Now, Sometimes advocacy on these cases just isn't that good, and that might be what's missing, people not making a stink at the trial level to get this stuff done properly. And I have to hope someone will get around to doing that at some point. Well, I mean, maybe we'll make some interesting case law here. If we look beyond the the RICO count, I mean, there's 40 other counts here. What do you make of the rest of what's been charged here? Do you see any of that as legally aggressive? Or is it that they have, you know, that a lot of the simpler charges are they forged documents when they claimed to be electors from the state of Georgia. They perjured themselves in various contexts. They made false statements to government officials. What does the rest of the of that indictment look like to you? Some of these indictments are counts are messed up. Like asking the General Assembly to do something seems like the corest of core political speech rights. And you're saying, well, you're asking them to violate their oath of office. You know what their oath of office says? I'm going to follow the Constitution and do what I think is best for the state. So to to explicate what that is here, some of the counts uh, here involve asking executive branch officials in Georgia to do things that they weren't supposed to do, like asking the Secretary of State to find 11,000 additional votes. And the theory is that by asking them to do something illegal that they don't have the power to do, that you're trying to induce them to violate their oath of office. And that doesn't seem to me like that odd a theory of a crime. It also has counts related to going to the legislature and asking the legislature to appoint electors, notwithstanding the fact that Georgia's electorate had voted to send the electors for Joe Biden. And, and I agree with Andrew. That seems like a really strange thing to be a crime because I don't I don't understand how you can be asking legislators to do something illegal by writing a law. I mean, they get to write the laws. If they write a new law that says the electors are what they are, then either that stands or, you know, it, it could violate the federal constitution, it could violate federal law, and it could be thrown out. But people lobby state legislatures to pass unconstitutional laws all the time. I mean, you have, you know, this this drag ban in Tennessee that just got stayed by a federal judge. And the remedy for that is supposed to be that you have judicial review and the courts throw out laws that are unconstitutional or, they're, or that are that are superseded by federal law, you don't put people in prison for going to the legislature and asking them to do something that a court is eventually going to say the legislature wasn't allowed to do. And and if you could, there'd be no prosecutors to bring that case. (laughs) They'd all be in jail. I I have to say that I I looked at this and after every one of the Trump indictments, the, the hue and the cry has been that you're criminalizing politics, think how this is going to be abused by the next people. And in general, I found that to be an exaggeration, but I think it's fairly well taken on this indictment. This is the first one where I thought, holy shit, if, you know, if the Republicans got their hands on this, imagine them going after, I don't know, Joe Biden's loan forgiveness plan or something like that. All the ways that this type of approach could be weaponized against nearly anything. So I I am troubled by it. And uh, the thing is, in Georgia, you can file a general demur at any time. A general demur is how you would challenge this. You would say it's not a crime or it's unconstitutional. And there's no time limit on that. You can file that in the middle of trial. So the the defense can file that, you mean? Uh, the defense can file. Okay. So uh, it'll be really interesting strategically to see, like, absolutely, they are going to try to dismiss this indictment. But do they do it right away and hope that they do it twice, in which case the case cannot be brought again? Or do they wait until the eve of trial and hope to really screw up their case when they've got their witnesses handy? 
Well, so if you threw out those counts, I mean, if you said, if, if you had a court that said, yeah, petitioning the legislature cannot be a crime, and you throw out that count, would the rest of the indictments survive? I mean, because it looks to me like, while there's a bunch of legally aggressive stuff in here, there's also a bunch of stuff that does not seem so legally aggressive, which is part of what's frustrating about this indictment. It feels like you could have drawn it in a more careful way that would have stood up better legally. They chose not to do that. But if is that what would happen if the courts threw out, if a court threw out part of the indictment? I mean, I think an aggressive defense attorney would say a lot of the stuff in the predicate acts here for RICO is also fully protected constitutional activity. Um, and normally that's not a problem, but this really, yeah, I, I would certainly give it a shot at the very least amending the indictment to take those counts out. I'm not sure I'd have much success, but it smells bad. It's core protected activity. I mean, to me, a lot of this, and, and this is my uh, typically arrogant ex-federal prosecutor uh, persona speaking, a lot of it smacks of, you know, a DA, uh, no one ever holds to account, uh, no one ever cuts back, no one ever says, no, you're going too aggressively, you can't do that. So they wind up doing stuff like this, where there's a lot of, frankly, it seems just gratuitous type of stuff that unnecessarily picks constitutional and legal fights just to wind up with, you know, 200 overt acts and 41 counts. I think you could make a devastating Georgia indictment out of this without being so gratuitous. For instance, one person is charged with knocking on a witness's door to talk to her about her case, which I do sometimes. That's a thing that I do. That's not <laughs> typically witness intimidation, uh, but they've charged it that way uh, in three separate counts. And I'm like, that seems like a bad precedent to set. That concludes today's free episode of Serious Trouble. If you want to hear more, if you want to hear about how Trump has a good shot at getting this case moved to federal court, about how the thing is likely to drag on for years, and how it may not even result in a custodial sentence if Trump is convicted, go to SeriousTrouble.show, upgrade to being a paying subscriber, and join us on the other side of the paywall. Come on in, the water's warm. See you over there. <laughs>